Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Today is a special edition of the podcast because we're going to talk about something we don't normally talk about. Actually, we're going to go over something that was filmed about a year ago for a documentary Last Stand Studios put out last year called American Monument. I did three of the interviews for that documentary, and two of them I did extended interviews uh, with, with the people we were interviewing, and I saved them and I haven't shared them. And I had the thought, well, I'll do like a civil war week or in a revolutionary war week. And I didn't know how far I get with other wars, maybe, but I'll just have some history content. And I didn't get very far. Uh, time got away from me. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to keep sitting on this. I'm going to release it. So I did release one of the episodes uh, that Brian McClanahan and I did together, where we talked about the civil war, but we traced through American history, kind of what led to it. And then afterward, the how the battle lines are still drawn. And we it I think I called it the unending civil war, we're still in it, in a way, it's never really ended uh, in, in one way. And so you can go check that out. And, and by the way, if you haven't seen American Monument, you need to check that out. Uh, go to YouTube, go to actually the best place to go is laststandstudios.org. And you can find the rumble link, the YouTube link and the Facebook link. It's being shadow banned on Facebook. And YouTube has put in age restrictions, but uh, go see what they don't want you to see. There you go. But anyway, this this next interview I want to share with you is from a, a gentleman who's, in my opinion, just a phenomenal writer, very clear. Uh, he's an independent historian, mostly writes about Civil War, Reconstruction, biographies. He did a great one on Ulysses S. Grant. He is, he, he is someone who's written for the New York Times. I mean, that's how, how good he is. Uh, and, and he's not, he's not a progressive, but he's not, he doesn't have the academic accolades in history that would get you mainstream approval in in the historical disciplines or anything. He's an independent historian, which honestly today, those are the best kind. And I talked to him about reconstruction. And so it's a, a short interview, but I think a very informative one and, uh, I just, uh, I'm glad I was able to do it. So look forward to you seeing it and put in the comments what you think. And uh, more content coming later in the week. Enjoy. Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. This is another edition of the Civil War Week special, and I have a special guest with me today, Phil Lee. Uh, thank you for joining me, Phil. Phil has uh, written for the New York Times. He has a number of books on the Civil War and Reconstruction. Walk us through some of your books. Well, I, uh, I have one book about uh, Grant's presidency because he's been, uh, people put a halo around uh, uh, General Grant and also President Grant, uh, but <laughs> they lose sight of the fact that uh, his administration was crooked. Yeah. It's kind of the origins of the deep state, right, in some ways. You, you could trace some of it back to, to Grant. Well, I think that uh, certainly there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of corruption. And, uh, I mean, for example, uh, he, he set an example. He may not have broken any laws, but he set an example for uh, uh, conduct that uh, is, is unbecoming. He was given uh, four houses after the Civil War. He was given one in Galena, Illinois. Um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, Long Branch, New Jersey, which was a uh, so-called 27-room cottage in Long Branch, New Jersey. Now, the guy that helped him, uh, the guy that led the donations for that ended up being assigned to collector of customs. 
at New York City. That was the largest port in the United States at the time, still is probably, but it was also tariffs were the major federal tax revenue at the time, and about two-thirds to three-fourths of the tariffs were collected in New York City, and the money tended to stick to the fingers of the collector. Okay, well, he had a, a few, I think he had one more house than Bernie Sanders, so that, yeah, that's pretty, uh, <laughs> um, so we want to talk today, though, a little bit about a topic that doesn't often get covered, in my opinion, when talking about the Civil War, and that's Reconstruction, because, uh, I mean, it, history, you know, is uh, sequential, obviously, everything's related to something that came before it and something that will come after it, and um, I, I know fr from my my study of Reconstruction, it seems to me that modern academia portrays it as this was the time, uh, the, the phrase you'll often hear is that the North won the war, but the South won the peace, and that they were able to establish, you know, white supremacy in the South, and it was just, it, it was basically a, a horrible place, akin to Nazi Germany, and they, you know, reasserted um, the dominance that had been there before the war, and slavery by a new name, you know. So I, I want to hear from you. What's the truth about Reconstruction? Uh, that that whole era. What what was the what were the conditions like in the South? Um, some of the policies that the, the government uh, put down. What, you know what were those and what effect did they have? Well, commonly what uh, you'll hear from academics is uh, well, you know, uh, uh, the, the uh, antebellum South was the King Cotton because they had slave labor, which made them the low cost producer of cotton throughout the world. And uh, but if you look after, after the Civil War, when there was no more slavery, the South was still the world's low-cost producer of cotton, the dominant producer of cotton well into uh, the, 19, uh, the 20th century, perhaps 19, uh, 1930 and beyond. The difference was everybody in the South was impoverished, not just the slaves. The Northern victors impoverished everybody. The per capita income in the South, 35 years after the war had ended, was uh, half of the U.S. average, what, which means that the region outside the North, or outside the South, had a per capita income uh, more than twice the South. Uh, it, and it stayed, the um, per capita income in the South did not get back to its previous below average uh, 70, 73rd percentile until 1950, which was 90 years after the 1860 census, which was wow. just before the Civil War. So what contributed to this? I know you said the northern capital, the people that won the war, but what policies did they enact that contributed to this? Why, why were the conditions so dismal? Well, the, one of them was the, the high tariffs were designed to promote manufacturing industries, and the manufacturing industries were primarily in the north. Now, one of the things that's chiefly understood about high tariffs is they tend to promote monopolies. And so the manufactured goods uh, that were monopolized and that were produced in the North became essentially the sole source for people throughout the country. They could import, but what's the point with high tariffs? For example, after the end of the Civil War, rail, the, the South needed to build, rebuild its railroads desperately. Railroad iron was uh, $80 a ton in Pennsylvania and uh, $35 a ton in Liverpool. The, wow. differ the difference, was, the difference was, was tariffs. And so it essentially became a monopoly. I see. <clears throat> um, so, you know, if you watch some of the, the older, more popular movies or read some of the, the books from, you know, I'd say pre-1960, like Gone with the Wind, um, you'll, you'll read about 
certain classes of people like carpetbaggers and scalawags, right? Which sometimes even you'll hear that today in, in uh, political discourse, you know, oh, that person's a, a carpetbagger. They're coming up, they're, you know, from the city to a more outlying area and they're trying to take advantage or something like that. Um, what, you know, I've heard in academia, in ap academic circles today that a lot of that's just a myth, you know, like as if that didn't happen. Um, so, so did that happen? What was that like? Yes it, did, yes, it did happen, and you're right, the academics of today minimize it, and beginning with uh, Eric Foner perhaps in, in the late 1980s, even earlier with his less popular works. But yes, that, that is a myth. The carpet bag, we did have uh, misrule during the, uh, the Reconstruction era. The, the governments were corrupt, and the taxes were much higher. If you, look at, if you look at the constitutions, they had some nice objectives in there, public education, all this sort of thing, but the only people that could pay for them were impoverished landowners. Impoverished landowners just couldn't afford it. So the scene in uh, Gone with the Wind about losing tariff or not, you know, for lack of property taxes or unable to pay property taxes, that was a reality. That, that was a reality for the, the, the southern landowners after the Civil War. Many of them did lose their homes, and many of them were, were, were frightened of losing their homes. And the problem is that left generations of resentment against the misrule. And as I pointed out in, I think, uh, in an interview we did at another time, if you examine what happened after the Civil War in terms of the spread of the demographics, blacks stayed quarantined in the South for well over a century into, in the, uh, after the Civil War. The 22 states that joined the United States all the way through Alaska and Hawaii, after Texas joined in 1845, 20 of the 22 states that joined had about 1% black population. The two exceptions were West Virginia and Oklahoma, which were about 5%. Well, why is that? Because, you know, I, I, I'm sure that academia wouldn't want to put out the, uh, give the impression that it was so good in the South that they wanted to stay there. Um, so was it, was it policies in the North? I mean, I know um, in, uh, the, I think the title of the book is Escaping Me, The Curious Case of Jim Crow by um, C. Van Woodward. C. Van Woodward. I think he talks about that the Jim Crow laws actually started in the North. Is that the reason? Because there were barriers to going to the North? The academics uh, will make, will put halos around abolitionists, particularly in Massachusetts. And one of the ones, uh, the, uh, the, one of the prominent leaders was Charles Sumner, Senator Charles Sumner who uh, promoted the, 18, uh, the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1875. He, there was, the Freedmen's Bureau was set up right after the Civil War to take care of the blacks in the South. The original bill was written with amendments to uh, uh, enable the Freedmen's Bureau to send blacks, surplus blacks, to the northern states. <laughs> Those amendments failed, and both Massachusetts Senators Wilson and Sumner, both of them voted against that amendment, even though they were great abolitionists. So, so let me just, just get this straight, because you never hear about this. Um, the, the narrative today that, uh, you know, the, after the war, the North um, financed and, and, you know, 40 acres and a mule and tried, tried to help black people in the South, that, that there's somewhat of a myth to that, because they actually did not want people uh, in the South who were black coming up north into their states and to help. To, to, so it's kind of like the immigration crisis. They, hey, we're for, you know, illegal migration, but we don't want them in our house, right? That, that sounds like a similar. That's, that's exactly the same. Abraham Lincoln in 1854 said, we want the Western territories 
for free white people. Direct quote. And he's not the only one. His secretary, his future secretary of state, William Seward, had similar views. Even Horace Greeley, go west, young man, go west. Yeah, that was for white, white people. He, he, he owned the New York Tribune, which was the most prominent newspaper at the time. He, he said the same thing. We want the western territories for whites. And we want, yeah, he wanted the farms in the south confiscated in order that the blacks could be given the land to stay in the south. Horace Greeley. So, so I have a question then. Why, why this vilification and uh, distorting kind of the, the narrative? Because, I mean, it used to be that, um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, even though I'm not that old, when there was kind of a sympathy for the people that were victims of the Dust Bowl, let's say, or uh, pe people in the South, whether white or black, that they, they had some kind of a poverty. And now that, that's just, that's gone. You, you, you can't have any sympathy for anyone, especially if someone's white and they live in the South. That's... They're the villains. They're they're kind of um, uh, you know they're they're the problem. And and some of the what you've just been mentioning, a lot of this is ignored. Uh, do, what do you attribute that to? I know we had talked about that previously uh, in another interview, but you know maybe maybe you could shine some light on that for people. Cancel culture is all about uh, uh, virtue signaling, signaling that I am morally superior to all of you. That's what this is all about. Um, but there's, there, there's, there's, there's no truth in it. So you're saying that in the, to, to blame the, the sins of the nation or the sins of, of America on this specific class is convenient. To say that they're the ones that are the source of, of racism and, um, and other evils perhaps uh, gets you kind of off the hook because you don't have to be responsible for that. It's ancient, the scapegoat, right? It's ancient. Yeah. And uh, if, if there's, a, there's a misconception that if I can blame other people, for, if I can point out how inferior other people are, it makes me superior. Uh, but I guess right now you can fool people some of the time, and maybe they're fooling people right now. But, you know, over the long run, people see through that. I have another question for you, because here's, I think one of the things that um, is true, it seems to be, is that especially in urban areas in the South after the war, maybe, I don't know, after uh, the Redeemer governments had come in, if I'm not mistaken, that's when um, uh, some of these uh, policies, uh, segregation, et cetera, started being passed. And I know it was more severe in urban areas than it was rural areas. Um, and, and, and that would be something I think we would say that's wrong, that shouldn't have happened. Why did it happen? The biggest, the biggest thing that needs to be kept in mind is that 40% of the population of the 11 Confederate, Confederate states was black. The states that <clears throat> were uh, organically Republican, um, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, New England, about 1% was black. So the racial adjustment was going to be profound in the South, not in the North. Even, even during, uh, I think in uh, 1862, the, the month before Lincoln m announced his Emancipation Proclamation, Illinois voted about two and a half to one to uh, block uh, Negro suffrage, black suffrage. And uh, they had 0.4% uh, of their population was black. Only 0.4%, which is four blacks per thousand people. And they voted over two and a half to one to uh, uh, disallow black wow. suffrage. Wow. <laughs> you don't think that would have affected much anyway. Yeah. That's Lincoln's home state. Right. That's the month before he announced the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. 
So there's a there's a lot of hypocrisy and in, in the there there was there was bound to be racial adjustment if Lincoln said if if uh, Horace Greeley said it if William Seward said it, and other prominent abolitionists we want the Western territories and the Northern states for free white people clearly there was a there was an aversion to uh, blacks at that time that was going to require uh, adjustment it's a much bigger adjustment to a uh, 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 reconcile a situation where the blacks are one percent as opposed to forty percent is racism wrong of course it is right. nobody nobody that uh, wants to uh, remember their confederate ancestors today would would agree that racism is good or that slavery was good that's that's a canard right right but the, the counterfeit virtue i think is it's important to uh, not put all the sins on this one class of people but that actually the attitudes were similar in the north if not maybe more aggressively against uh, black people. Well, the, the, the racism in the North was probably equal to what it was in the South. They just didn't have as big a problem uh, because there, there were not that many blacks there. It, it, again, I'll go back to the point. Look at how the, the statistics show. 22 states joined the United States after Texas in 1845. 20 of them had about 1% population black. The other two were two, Oklahoma, West Virginia, with about 5%. Now, now let me ask you this. Was, was there maybe some resentment uh, that played a, a role in uh, passing some of the Jim Crow laws uh, that uh, maybe the Freedmen's Bureau um, uh, has, I, I, I'm not sure exactly, the Union League, I'm gonna, some of these organizations, I, I, maybe you can attribute, make the connections better than me, but that they had manipulated the vote. Because I, I remember seeing um, something that uh, it, it was a, picture, I think it was the Mississippi legislature during Reconstruction, and it was almost entirely made up of black people. And I thought, well, I, you know, I, I don't know if that represented the population of the time, and, and you know, was there, were there efforts to maybe um, get black people to vote Republican in an illegitimate way, paying them for votes? I mean, I've heard this kind of stuff. Is it true? Is it... It's not reported, but incidentally, the illustration you're thinking of is probably South Carolina because they had an even larger percentage maybe, of the, maybe, I thought it was Mississippi, but okay. Uh, but Mississippi did have a lot of uh, over 50% black as well in terms of population. Yes, there's, uh, this is something that is, uh, is ignored. Is the, um, the blacks, were, the northern states <laughs> repeatedly voted against black suffrage before the Civil War and even after the Civil War. Um, they didn't want them voting, even though they were a tiny percentage of the uh, electorate. So the South, to, 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 change it to, uh, uh, to change the electorate to the point where the blacks and their allies, their white allies, were a majority of the voters that could then control the government, was an invitation to misrule. And we did get misrule. Those, those were corrupt regimes. That, unfortunately, and the men at the time admitted it, the, 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 there was white hostility toward the black, but it was even greater toward the carpetbaggers. They held the carpetbaggers more responsible for this manipulation of the black vote than uh, they did the blacks. But unfortunately, who, the blacks bore the brunt of the hostility. It really didn't appear until the 1890s, however, because um, that's, when, that's when the Jim Crow era really began. Up until about 1890, the, the, the blacks could get elected into the legislature. So, so if you look at this sequentially, just as a historian, I'm, I mean, sequences are really important to me. And here, here's the narrative that is put out there in the popular um, media. Uh, you have this legacy of slavery that creates Jim Crow in the South that then creates police abuse 
right, today, and that's what murdered George Floyd, right? Like, that's kind of the trajectory that there's this systemic racism that it always changes forms, it never goes away. But it seems like what you're saying is that actually it wasn't like immediately after the Civil War, all of a sudden everyone's like, let's, let's get some Jim Crow laws in here. There's actually a little bit of a gap there, or this organically kind of formed over time. Um, as a result, perhaps the, the problem with race relations that, that did exist was more attributed to um, the, the way that that whole conflict was handled in the aftermath more than maybe slavery itself, or at least that's a contributing factor. Is that fair? Yeah, it was the misrule during the Reconstruction era that led to the hostility. That poisoned race relations. Yeah, it poisoned, that's a good term. They po it poisoned race relations. And it, Brazil, for example, I freed slaves, I think, in around 1885. You didn't have that kind of problem because you didn't have somebody, you know, giving them the vote and, and imposing new governments in, in the regions of Brazil or in the states or whatever they had. So there was much more uh, harmonious uh, uh, race relation adjustment down there. But that, it, Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee Institute, a great man, uh, he, he admitted, he said that uh, this, uh, all this white reconstruction, or the reconstruction era, of uh, carpetbaggers, and that was really uh, a, a manipulation of my race. And he said, I thought so at the time, and of course it's turned out to be worse than he thought. Of course he's blacklisted now, kind of. <laughs> at least you don't hear about him much during like Black History Month. Um, well, he, he, he may be blacklisted, but if you read Webb Du Bois, who is sort of the Malcolm X of that era, uh, Mal he also said that, uh, uh, that you know, Blacks also had to take responsibility for the situation mm. uh, in terms of uh, getting themselves out of poverty. Yeah. So today, you know, where we, where we are right now in uh, 2021, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the past, obviously, you know, history, we, we're, we're the beneficiaries and sometimes uh, in, in some sense we, we bear the brunt of mistakes that were made in the past. But it, it, it seems to me, uh, I've lived in the South for a few years in North Carolina and Virginia, um, that a lot of these, the problems that did exist have been pretty much eradicated in most areas. And uh, those, those um, hurt feelings and uh, you know, um, resentments that, that seemed to exist uh, were kind of going away until, this is my opinion, uh, until the Black Lives Matter movement started going. And now all of a sudden we're seeing a lot of this resentment um, come up again. Uh, and they're using, um, a, a certain narrative of history to try to promote this kind of resentment. Um, where, where do you, what are your thoughts on that? Where do you think, where do you think this is going? The historical discipline, the politicalization of the historical discipline. Do you think that will continue? Do you think, um, uh, do you think that it's a problem that the current narrative places so much blame for all the, the country's sins on one class of people? I, I think it's a significant problem, and I, I agree with you. Uh, it, um, unfortunately, it, it, it may well lead to a backlash. Most of the memorials to uh, the Civil Rights era are in the South. Um, I think if you compare the number of streets and avenues and schools named for Martin Luther King in the South and compare them to those in the North, uh, there's, a great, uh, there's a much greater tendency for them to be in the South. I mean, for example, I think Mississippi has, uh, I can't remember the statistics, but it has four times as many MLK streets and avenues as does Ohio 
with, no, it has twice, yeah, it has twice the MLK streets and avenues as does Ohio, but has only one-fourth the population. Wow. And that's typical. Wow. The, the, the South was making, was making great adjustment. In my opinion, as I look back on it, I, I think the, the, real, the real problem was Obama. Obama could have been <clears throat> a great um, force for re uh, racial rec uh, reconciliation, but he chose to divide and divide and divide. Um, it, he, for example, I mean, it, it just for, to take, take off the race issue for a moment, he's, uh, he's, he's a promoter of, uh, uh, an advocate of doing something to uh, uh, address uh, climate change. Yet he and his wife just bought a home on, well, not just, but you know, in the last few years, they bought a home on Martha's Vineyard. If, if the, water, the waters of the ocean were going to rise, Martha's Vineyard is not land you want to own. So they didn't believe what he's saying. That's right. Well, you know, believe what, watch what people do, not what they say, what they do. And uh, another misconception I'd like to clear up is that as late as the 1938, half, fully half of the sharecroppers were white, not black. Now, many people overlooked that, and they typically earned about 25 cents a day, seven, between 15 and 25 cents a day. So they, they were perfect candidates for victim status in today's intersectional kind of paradigm. Except for the, except for the immutable characteristic of their skin. Their skin. That doesn't matter to you or me or Tom. It really shouldn't matter to anyone. Yeah. But that's, that's where the, uh, the political power seems to be today. But anybody that is um, per perpetually dissatisfied is going to make changes, but unless they can get some satisfaction out of what they're doing, they're never going to be happy. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts, because this has been very enlightening, I think, to a lot of people, uh, because you're, you're kind of um, poking a hole in some of the narratives that are out there and showing uh, maybe the government has some responsibility or a part to play in the policy during Reconstruction, as, as Reagan would say, right? The government is the problem sometimes, and, um, and and that could have that poisoned race relations, and that led to some of the problems that did exist. Um, and, and blaming this one class of people, only putting them under the microscope, um, has uh, has been not only dishonest but had a detrimental effect. And so I appreciate you taking your time to talk to me. Where can people find out more about your books? Um, and maybe you can recommend a book. I know you wrote one on Reconstruction uh, for them to read if they want to know more about this. Thank you. Southern Reconstruction by Philip Lee. And the last name is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Southern Reconstruction or U.S. Grant's Failed Presidency. Both of them are good on Reconstruction, so thank you for that. Yeah, and you can go to Amazon. Where, where would you? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, as they say, all fine bookstores. Okay. And I know you have a YouTube channel, you have a blog, uh, Civil War Chat, right? That's right. Civil War Chat is my blog, and I have a YouTube channel, which I'm not sure what the name of it is. but it's, <laughs> it's, We'll link it. We'll put it in the info section. I'll find it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to yeah. express my, my thoughts. Yeah, well, my pleasure, Phil. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. God bless. God bless. Yeah.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.